0: You deserve a break today, says McDonald's, for someone who deserves only the very best, says one jewelry firm. Go ahead, you deserve it, says a vendor of chocolates. Every American has a right to a quality car, once said by a Chrysler CEO. You see, it's yours by right. You deserve it. That's how advertisers seek to lure you to buy their product. It's a subtle appeal to our vanity, our pride, our sense of self-importance. It fuels a sense of entitlement. But think for a moment. What do you deserve? Now that's a profound question involving much more than how you will spend your money. The answer to that question reflects our view of ourself and even it reflects our view of God. Think for a moment what you deserve, say, from your employer, your paycheck, certainly you earned it, but at what wage? What do you deserve to be paid? I mean, we'd all agree that uh, Washington National star Bryce Harper, who is batting about 325, deserves to be paid much more than catcher Jose Lobotan, who's only hitting about 158. I mean, that's pretty obvious. But does Bruce, uh, Bryce Harper really deserve $13 million a year for hitting a baseball while for pouring out her life to care for the dying souls of Calcutta? Mother Teresa got paid nothing. Shall we call, uh, talk about comparable worth here? What do you deserve? And not just on your job, if you have one, but in your life. Do you deserve... To own your own car or your own house do you deserve to enjoy good health do you deserve to have a life free from disease or tragedy do you deserve to experience happiness in life do you deserve to go to heaven when you die the question ultimately comes to this what do you deserve from the hand of god You see, we all carry within us some assumption about the way we think we deserve to be treated by God. When we suffer, we quickly ask, what did I do to deserve this? Though rarely do we ask the same question when we prosper. But think about it. What did you deserve, what did you do to to deserve to live here in the United States of America and not in the floodlands of Bangladesh or in the wastelands of Siberia? Do we deserve the advantages of birth or, or family or opportunity that we've all enjoyed in one way or another? What do you deserve from the hand of God? You see, that's a question faced by the Israelites as they stood on the east side of the Jordan River about to take possession of the promised land. Moses knew the natural inclination of the human heart. And he warns the Israelites of the temptation they will surely face in coming to answer this very question. And he sets out the issue in the first six verses of our text. In verses 1 to 3, he gives the covenant promise, the promise of God's goodness to his people. And then in verses 4 to 6, he states the covenant principle, the principle of God's grace to his people. And then in the rest of our passage, this covenant principle is illustrated in the life of these people. As Moses recounts to the Israelites how through their own rebellion, the covenant was broken. And then how through his own intervention, the covenant was mediated. And then finally, how through God's grace, the covenant was renewed. What did the Israelites deserve from the hand of God? They had to face this question, and so must we. For the way that we answer it, will have a profound effect on the way that we relate to God and the way we relate to other people. So let's turn back then to Deuteronomy chapter 9, which we just read. First, the covenant promise. Beginning at verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anakites, you know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? Ah yes, the Anakites, a general term uh, that includes the, the Canaanites. Everybody knew about the Anakites. For 40 years, they'd been talking about the Anakites. In fact, the very reason that they had been wandering in the desert the last 40 years was because of the Anakites. The ten spies that had been sent out by Moses uh, had warned them about the Anakites. How big and strong and invincible they were. Forget about what God had promised, they said. There's no way to overcome the Anakites. Who can stand up against the Anakites? It'd be like the Anadol high school football team trying to go up against the Washington Redskins. They may put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you do, but what does it matter when their one leg is bigger than two of yours? But in the face of a thousand to one odds of defeating the Anakites, look at the promise of verse 3. But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. See, this is the promise of God's goodness to these people, demonstrated here in the gift of this good land. The Lord had promised His power to overcome any opponent. This land is yours for the taking, He says. But notice the interesting interplay between God's role and Israel's role in the fulfillment of this promise. The Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, Moses says. See, God's promise works itself out as the recipients of that promise receive it in faith and in obedience act upon that promise. The Lord will destroy them. You will drive them out and annihilate them. So who's doing what here? And When the the battle takes place and Israel comes out the winner, it would be very easy for them to fall into the error that we talked about back in chapter 8. They could see what they had done and say, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this great victory for me. They would would think they could take credit for what had been accomplished, forgetting that the success was only the result of God's power based on His promise. No need to thank God for what had happened. We did it all by ourselves. How easily we forget the goodness of God in our lives. And so, as a Christian believer... Perhaps you begin to grow in godliness as the Spirit of God does His good work in your heart and you begin to do some good things that you you wouldn't have even thought of doing before and you start congratulating yourself for all of your good works. No. Thank God for His good work in you. That's what the Apostle Paul does. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace in me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So God's promise of, of becoming more like Christ, of growing in godliness, that's, that's His promise, and we're to receive that promise and act upon that promise and grow in godliness. But when we do, we mustn't think that it was our power, our strength, our godliness, that was the result. No, it was God's work in us. But there's another error, error here, equally dangerous, that could result. Even when the Israelites recognized that it was God's power at work. It's mentioned here by Moses in verse 4. He says, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. The promise of the covenant must be coupled with the underlying principle of that covenant, and it is the principle of God's grace. That's what Moses outlines in verses 4 to 6 here. You may think that this is because of your righteousness, that the Lord is giving you this victory, Moses says, but no. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what He swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, For you are a stiff-necked people. Could he have said it any more clearly or emphatically here? I am destroying the Canaanites because their society is an abomination in my sight, God says. We talked about this several weeks ago back in chapter 7. Canaanite religion glorified sexual immorality. It cheapened human life. The Lord saw their temple prostitutes making illicit sex a form of worship. The Lord heard the cries of the young children who were being sacrificed on their sacred altars and He had had enough. These people were ripe for judgment and He was using the Israelites as His instrument to accomplish His righteous purpose. In experiencing God's wrath, the Canaanites Canaanites got what they deserved. Make no mistake about it. But on the other hand, in experiencing God's love, the Israelites didn't deserve what they got. Just because God used them as his instruments of judgment didn't mean that they were therefore righteous in God's sight. Do you see this, he says? The Canaanites were sinful, but the Israelites were hardly pristine in their purity. Quite the contrary. You are a stiff-necked people. You're not receiving this land because of your righteousness. Righteousness. You're receiving it because of My gracious promise, which I swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, God's gracious purpose was to call out a people for His own possession, a people who would learn to live as His instruments of glory, showing forth grace to the world. They would be His covenant people. And here's the covenant principle. God's judgment is just, but God's goodness is gracious. It's it's undeserved. It's unmerited. It's a gift to those who have no claim upon it, none at all. All we can do is receive it in humble faith. There's no place for spiritual pride among God's people. The Israelites could look at the destruction of the Canaanites and quite honestly say, There, but by the grace of God, go I. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. So this covenant primi- a prom- a principle of God's grace is now illustrated in the rest of the passage as the true character of these people is made clear so you think you're deserving of god's goodness well perhaps i could refresh your memory for a moment moses says verse 7 remember this and never forget how you provoked the lord your god to anger in the desert from the day you left egypt until you arrived here you have been rebellious against the lord At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. Think about it, Moses says. Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai. It was that sacred place where God himself was present, where God himself was giving to me his holy law, Moses says. Even there, you rebelled against the Lord. Verse 11, he says, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once, because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've turned away quickly from what I commanded them, and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I've seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. When I looked, I saw that that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You, You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. You turned aside quickly, quickly, at the very moment of God's greatest revelation of His holiness, you turned your back on Him, and you were making for yourself a golden calf to worship. And this was no isolated incident. Look at verse 22. You also made the Lord angry at Tabera, at Massa, and at kibroth uh, We we know those stories from the book of of Book of Numbers. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh-Barnea, he said, "Go up and take possession of the land I'm giving you, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him." You see, the history of Israel up to this point is one of total failure. Again and again, they have failed to respond to the Lord in faithful obedience. And Moses' conclusion here, verse 24 you have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. How dare you think that it is because of your righteousness? that the Lord is giving you this good land to possess. You are a stiff-necked and stubborn people indeed to go on believing that when all the evidence points in the opposite direction. But you see, the story of Israel is simply the story of all humanity projected onto the big screen. What would the Lord have to say to you when you start thinking as the Israelites did, when you say, well, I'm glad I'm, I'm not like that tax collector or that Islamic terrorist or that militant atheist or that right-wing conservative or that left-wing progressive, depending on where you line up politically, it's because of my own righteousness that I am now right with God. But are there not a few skeletons in your closet? It could be brought out as evidence against that assessment. You may think politicians have it bad these days. I mean, having their lives open to the intense scrutiny of the press. Well, that's nothing. You see, your life is laid bare by the all-seeing gaze of Almighty God. And I dare say he wouldn't have to go too far back to find something on you. Imagine for a moment having all your thoughts, just from yesterday, projected onto that 80-millimeter IMAX big screen with the Dolby stereo for all the world to see and hear. I don't think we'd feel guilt so much as just shame. Every one of us would be so ashamed that we'd have to leave town. The arrogance, the greed, the envy, the lust, the critical thoughts, who of us has not been rebellious? Against the Lord, deep within our souls, that sinful nature still clinging to us would disqualify us in a second from the presence of a holy God. When he became a Christian, C.S. Lewis says that he found inside himself a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatred. You see, sin is is much deeper than simply disobeying some outward command of God. You see, sin's essence is a refusal to acknowledge that God is God. I think of the powerful words of J.I. Packer. He says, sin is playing God. And as a means to this, refusing to allow God the Creator to be God, as far as you're concerned, living not for Him, but for yourself. Loving and serving and pleasing yourself without reference to the Creator, trying to be as far as possible, independent of Him, taking yourself out of His hands, holding Him at arm's length, keeping the reins of life in your own hands, acting as if you and your pleasure were the end to which all things, everything else, God included, must be made to function as a means. That's the attitude in which sin essentially consists sin is exalting oneself against the creator withholding the homage due to him and putting yourself in his place as the ultimate standard of reference in all life's decisions and when you think of sin like that how can you think that it is because of your righteousness that you have received so abundantly of god's goodness that's not it at all so when Moses came down from the mountain, he saw what the Israelites had done. and He says, I took the two stone tablets, threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes, verse 17. And this act signifying that, that God's covenant with Israel was broken. It was smashed by their disobedience and sin. Her relationship with the Lord had been ruptured. Israel was now in desperate need of a mediator to overcome her alienation from the Lord. And this is the role that Moses assumes here, beginning in verse 25. He says, I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord had said He would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord. I want you to look at the way that Moses prays here. Notice the basis of Moses' appeal to God on Israel's behalf. Four justifications for his prayer emerge here. First, Moses appeals to God's love. In verse 26, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great hand and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Now if you notice back in verse 12, the Lord in speaking to Moses had referred to Israel as your people whom you brought out of Egypt. Here Moses says, no Lord, they're your people. You had set your love upon them. You had chosen them. You had rescued them. Don't forget that love. Don't forsake that love. So Moses first appeals to God's own love. Then in verse 27, Moses appeals to God's promise. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you had promised them a great nation that would become a a blessing to the world. Remember your promise, O Lord. And then also again in verse 27, Moses appeals to God's mercy. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. In your wrath, remember mercy. Forgive their sin, he says. And finally in verse 28, Moses appeals to God's honor. He says, otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the desert." He said, Lord, if you destroy these people here, the Egyptians may have reason to doubt your power and your love. It would undermine the truth that you are great and that you are good. For the sake of the honor of your name, do not destroy your people. Hallowed be your name among the nations. God's love, God's promise, God's mercy, God's honor... This is the basis of Moses' appeal here. You see, it was based on who God was. And not on who Israel was. He didn't say, oh Lord, they're trying. They're doing the best they can. They're they're not so bad. They'll do better next time. Just one more chance. Lord, these people deserve better from you. No. The basis of Moses' intercession was fully and completely God's goodness, God's grace, and the glory of God's name. So I ask you, do you pray like that? I would challenge you. When you pray, ask yourself, what is the basis of this prayer? Why should God answer this prayer? How would the answer to this prayer result in glory to God? What is it about the character of God that ought to move him to answer this prayer? And on this basis, as we move to chapter 10, we see Moses' prayer was heard. At that time the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also make a wooden chest. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Then you're to put them into the chest. And then we see that that kind of aside there in in chapter 10 where it talks about what happened. Well, Those are just ways of showing. The covenant continued. Uh, Even Aaron and his line was preserved. And then he concludes in verse 11, Go, the Lord said to me and lead the people on their way so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Through Moses' mediation, the covenant, this covenant based solely on the grace of God, this covenant has been renewed. And this good land was now theirs to possess. So I ask again, what did the Israelites deserve from the hand of God? Nothing. Can't you see it? Nothing at all. It was not because of their righteousness that the Lord was bringing him into that good land. That land was a gift of His grace. Yes, they had to believe that promise. They had to act on that promise to actually take the land. But the land was still a gift. It was a gift of God's grace. And they had this most important lesson to learn. And so do we. We need to learn this lesson most importantly because it is the first step in coming into a relationship with God. We must first recognize who He is and who we are. That He is the Holy King. We are but His rebellious subjects. He is the righteous Lord. We are His guilty debtors. He is the author of life. And without His saving work, we are spiritually dead infected with this dreadful disease of sin that affects every aspect of our being, heart, soul, mind, and body. And so we must come as beggars with no claim upon His goodness. We must recognize that He is under no obligation to extend a loving hand toward us. We deserve nothing but His righteous wrath. But you may say, well, I'm as good as the next guy. Why should I deserve anything less than anybody else? That sounds reasonable. Anyone can look around and find those that make them appear more moral, more ethical, more righteous if you look on a sliding scale. But what if the next guy is Jesus Christ? Would it still be true that you're as good as the next guy? I don't think so. And doesn't Jesus Himself show you what you deserve when He hung upon a cross Bearing the, the penalty that is due to anyone who has broken God's law and has refused to worship God as God, the cross. You see, that's what we deserve. That's what we all deserve. Now, if we're to come to know the Lord, we must know him as he is and ourselves as he is, as we are in his sight, you see. And thus, the need for spiritual humility. This is the one I esteem, says the Lord, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As the Scottish preacher James Stewart, Stewart put it, no one who is too proud to be infinitely in debt will ever be a Christian. You see, this is the first step, this indispensable first step, recognizing your utter and desperate need of God's grace in your life. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you at the proper time. Now, there's another reason we need to learn Israel's lesson here. But If we develop this spiritual humility that comes through a right understanding of grace, we can expect to see two tangible consequences in our lives. Qualities that the world desperately needs to see. First, spiritual humility leads to what I call interpersonal grace. You see, as we recognize the extent of God's grace in our lives, we develop the power to show that same kind of grace to others. We become less judgmental, less critical of others' faults, more patient, more forgiving in fact, Jesus made this attitude of interpersonal grace a necessary sign for, of our own grasp of God's grace toward us and a necessary expression of it. Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so the world needs to see this kind of grace at work in our lives if they're to understand the grace of God. And often, you see, we experience the grace of God first through the grace we experience through other people. And second, the spiritual humility leads to what I call material contentment. You see, we we realize, contrary to what the advertisers are telling us, we don't deserve more and more. We deserve nothing. But all that we have is a gracious gift from God. And with this attitude, we can receive what we have with thankful hearts, whether great or small. And one preacher said, a humble mind is the soil out of which thanks naturally grows. A proud man is seldom a grateful man, for he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. So gratitude begins where a sense of entitlement ends. So I ask you, are you humble enough to be thankful for in thankfulness there is great contentment? What do you deserve from the hand of God? What do you think you've got coming to you? Let me tell you what the Lord offers you. He doesn't offer you congratulations. He offers you forgiveness. He doesn't offer you a return on your investment, the wages of your labor. He offers you a free gift. The Lord offers a relationship with Himself. He offers you His own life. Eternal life. That's the message of the Gospel. Through entrusting your life to Jesus Christ, you become a member of His covenant people. You become a partaker of this principle of the covenant, which is God's grace. That's the offer. How do you respond? Take this offer... And you will get what you don't deserve. Refuse it. And you will deserve what you get. Let's pray as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. I invite our servers to come forward. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to Your marvelous grace, Your undeserved favor toward us. For, Lord, we are sinners. We have stubborn and rebellious hearts that turn away from You, that want to be our own God. O Lord, have mercy upon us. And in Your grace, come and give us new hearts, the, the hearts that are promised in this new covenant which will talk about soon. This new covenant of Your mercy and grace that comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we come before this table, we want to give You thanks. We want to give You thanks for giving us Yourself in Your Son. We want to thank You for His sacrifice for us as He takes upon our sins upon Himself. Lord, may we see in the bread and the cup Your marvelous grace and receive it afresh here this morning in jesus name amen amen